This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Whether you're listening to us live on your little radio set or you are tuning into the podcast, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time so that we can talk to you about science once again. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Liv's doing our Twitter feed over <laughs> there. We have uh, some fantastic guests today. We actually have four guests uh, on the show, so we may do a little bit of news at the end of the show, but we actually uh, thought we'd make it a guest-heavy show. And the first yeah. one, actually, we already have on the line. Um, her name is Dr. Teresa Uvide. Teresa, can you hear us? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Now, Teresa, you're a lecturer in, in Igneous Petrology and Volcanology in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Queensland. Thanks so much for joining us. You're, you're doing some absolutely amazing work. Um, from, from what I know, you've been looking at these tiny crystals that form deep inside volcanoes. Tell us, how do you get these things out? Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, well, I think it's a, a very exciting research myself. So what we do is we uh, travel around the world, get samples from volcanically active areas, and in the samples, which are rocks, which are uh, called uh, magma, Mm-hmm. We found these crystals, and the nice thing and the key thing is that the crystals started to grow inside the volcano before the eruption started, and so they hold the secrets of what happened inside and what kind of processes might lead to eruption. So how long do these crystals take to actually form? Because I can imagine that the longer that process is, the more of a timeline you would have of what's going on with some of these volcanoes. Yes, correct. So the crystals can take, um, you know, even hundreds to thousands of years to form. It depends on the particular system. So they can record very protract- protracted histories uh, prior to eruption. And, you know, the last bit of information that they record is uh, can be what happened before the eruption. They, um, the nice thing about them is that they typically form in rings, like mm-hmm. in, they, they they grow by layer by layer, like a bit like the rings of trees. Yep. And so if you look at the last ring, very close to the edge of the crystal, that might be related to the event that triggered the volcano to erupt. Wow. Now, you, you must um, you must have a, a tough time finding these. Are they, are they embedded within within the sort of cool-down rock from, from volcanoes? Do you, do you have to soar through rock? Or how do, you, how do you go about actually locating these crystals? Yes, uh, great question. So we collect the rocks um, at these volcanically active areas, and then we slice them um, and generate, like, a very thin layer of material, mm-hmm. which uh, we can look then under the microscope. So we generate very, very thin layers of rock, that we glue onto a slide and then we look through them uh, under the microscope and then that's when we see the crystals that we are going to target for analysis. Mm. Now, you mentioned that they're collecting information, you know, all the way through the sort of life cycle of these volcanoes and that last, that very last crystalline ring is the one that happens just before they're ejected. What what does this tell us in terms of our ability to determine when these eruptions will occur? Yes, yeah, so um, the thing is that each volcanic system is quite complex and 
it, but it might vary a bit from one to another. So in certain volcanic systems, the processes that trigger eruption might be different to others. Mm-hmm. So the uh, key bit of information that we get from the crystals is how the volcano has typically uh, behaved in the past. And so that kind of gives us, gives us an idea of how it is likely to behave in the future. And so in the future, when we get uh, signs of unrest, say earthquakes or gas coming out of the crater or ground deformation, we can have a um, better picture from the crystals on what to expect from the volcano. Is the volcano going to erupt or not? Is it going to erupt likely shortly or is it going to take a while? So this kind of uh, information can help us interpret future signs of unrest. Mm. So, Dr. Uh, Teresa, this is Dr. Ray. Um, I was trying to understand, what's the inform- the actual information? Is it compositional? But the way you talked about earthquakes, I mean, does the crystal effectively work like a shock sensor on a package where, you know, it, you know, it turns red if FedEx dropped your overseas glass vase? Or, <laughs> so is, it, is the information compositional information or is it it, it, it it somehow can code or you can learn about uh, seismic information as well, or? Okay, so the information is compositional, that's correct. So what we do, we identify the crystals with the microscope and then we analyze them with analytical techniques that give us their composition. And so what we've done actually is to develop a laser-based technology that allows us to um, drill into the crystals and analyze that drilled uh, material and get the chemical composition. So, for example, if uh, the, a particular eruption in the past was triggered by the arrival of new magma, and if new magma had a different, had a different composition, we should be able to see that, as you said, with a red, for example, layer very close to the edge with a distinct composition. And so we know that, you know, uh, then we can target this particular area in the crystal, the rim, which has a distinct composition to get to know how much time elapsed uh, between the arrival of magma and eruption and at what kind of depths this happened. So then in the future, uh, when earthquakes are recorded from certain depths, similar to the previous uh, eruptive uh, records, we can kind of expect how much time we have to react to these signals and how much time is going to take to typically generate an eruption. So this is pretty cool. So you're, you're using the, the crystals to, to read about the volcano's history, but you're actually translating that into measurable events that you can look for. So you're learning about the, when it's going to have an earthquake, but in the future, you don't necessarily need to read the crystal. You can look for the other symptoms that happen on a volcano as well. Exactly. So the the beauty of this is that lots of volcanologists look at volcanoes from different perspectives. So our perspective to, would be to look at past events and past crystals and see how the volcano typically works in terms of what depths uh, it has activity or dangerous activity at, what time of uh, what sort of time scales lead to eruption and in the future uh, the volcanologists ha- that look at things like earthquakes and ground deformation have this uh, previous picture uh, from previous eruptions to kind of um, and that kind of helps interpret uh, to uh, decide what's, what's likely to happen mm. from new unrest yeah 
Teresa, I mean, this, this work is just spectacular. I, I have to ask you a couple of questions, though, that uh, just involve me being a big big kid when it comes to volcanoes. Um, how close have you been to some of these these amazing structures? I mean, I, I just find volcanoes extraordinary. How, how close have you been in your career? So I find them extraordinary, too. <laughs> They're really, really nice. And um, most of the time... We sample when the eruptive event has concluded. Mm -hmm. So most of the time we sample volcanoes that are not erupting at that particular time. But I have seen uh, eruptions live and it's a very, very special uh, moment. Mm. For example, I've seen erupting Mount Etna in, on the island of Sicily in yeah. Italy. And I've also seen Stromboli erupting really, really close. In Stromboli, you can actually, Stromboli is an island north of Sicily, very, very small. It's just literally the volcano. And you can get really close to the to the eruption. And that's mm. really, that was really special. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things that, that, you know, of course happens around volcanoes during this time is the they create their entire weather system uh, around the, a volcano. You know, you get changes in air pressure, everything. I mean, did, did it feel different when this was all occurring? I mean, was it like being on a, on a boat during an electrical storm? You had that real incredible sense of electricity in the air and so forth. How did it, how did it feel being so close to such a, an incredible geological event? <laughs> well, as I said, it's very, very special. It's uh, very, you know, the sound is very spectacular and what you see is even more spectacular. The red glow, particularly mm. if it's at night, it contrasts with the, with the dark uh, sky. But of course, the, um, the one I've been close to, which is Stromboli, it's not extremely explosive, so you know the, the more explosive it gets, the less the the, the more far away you need to be for yeah. safety. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really really a very nice experience, and tourists go as well. It's really worth um, seeing. <laughs> mm. Well, Teresa, look, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. This is an area where we, as you might imagine, we don't get a lot of guests in Australia who, who deal with volcanoes, and it could be because Australia doesn't uh, have any active ones as far as I know. Um, but uh, this is really fascinating work, and I think just, just as with seismology, you know, it's an area where there is probably more questions than there are answers at the moment. This sounds like a really good pathway to follow to um, to learn more about that life cycle of, of volcanoes. Yeah. Yeah, we are working towards, you know, one day being able to better predict them. We are far away from that goal yet. Mm. But that's why we do studies from very many different perspectives to try to understand volcanoes better and try to work towards the prediction in the future. Yeah. And Australia has some considered dormant volcanoes in Victoria, yep. as well as active volcanoes um, in the McDonnell Islands. Uh, and also, Australia is uh, flanked to the north and east by the Pacific Ring of Fire, so mm. it's really... Not yeah, so far away, a, yeah. No, not so far away, yeah. New Zealand is close, Bali is close. Yeah. So, yeah, but we've seen eruptions in Vanuatu and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it certainly affects our, um, our, our air travel nearby. Teresa, thanks so much for chatting to us and good luck with the work in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's Bye. great to talk to you. Dr. Teresa Uvide is a lecturer in Igneous Petrology and Volcanology in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Queensland. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in, in just a moment with our first uh, guest that's actually in the studio for today, with our second guest. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Uh, 
Yeah, you're listening to Einstein and Go Go, folks. It's uh, three triple R here, and um, we uh, have our first uh, in the studio guest uh, for today. Her name is Haley Dickinson. Now, Haley, I'm not even sure how I should announce you now because <laughs> you you've left academia. So it's Haley Dickinson from. You can give a sub if you want. Yeah, I know. I live in St Andrews Beach. There you go. <laughs> it's a funny thing for me, Shane. This is yeah. the first time that I've kind of publicly communicated and I am I don't have an official affiliation it's just me doing my stuff yeah, now, now it's interesting because we've talked a lot over the last few years and, and people who listen to the show a lot know that um, I do as much as possible with regards to supporting women in science and, and research in general not just science and uh, talking around some of the difficulties and so forth but usually when we're talking to people it's people who are still in it and struggling and you've you've made the choice to depart so I mean talk us through that decision making process and what what's some of the limitations were in the in the career that that caused you to make that choice yeah sure uh, it took me two goes to get out um you know i took three months off in 2016 after the nhmrc grant round so yep. in march i was tired it just all felt really difficult so i took some time off i found a really great psychologist and kind of processed why it was so difficult for me um i had a three-year-old at the time yep. cody and you know i wanted to be with her but I wanted to be building my laboratory and building my research program as well. But I found that it was really difficult to yeah. achieve both of those things as well as I wanted to. You know, I have high expectations of myself and those around me, it would turn out. But so I kind of, I took some time and I learned a lot of things about myself and I thought I was better. So I, I went back. But of course you go back 100% and really for research, I think mm. sometimes it's more like 150% to, you know, you work your hours, but then you work at home, you know, you get everyone fed and into bed and you keep working. Hmm. And so I kind of became this creep again that it was just taking over. The lessons I'd learned in that three-month break, I started to forget them. I didn't right. rewire long enough. And so I, I burnt again and I kind of thought, I can't keep doing this. I'm no good for myself. I'm no good for my family. And ultimately, I'm no good for the research team either. You know, I was, hmm. I was the head of the laboratory. I was responsible for getting the funding, for really driving the research program. And on paper, we were incredibly successful. You know, we I had a postdoc with a fellowship, Stacey Ellery, incredible scientist you know i was on an nhmrc cdf right. great post uh, great phd students you've had one of my phd students in here before shane nadia bellafore right. yeah, who yeah. talked about the you know the spiny mouse and the menstrual yeah, cycle yeah. you know we were getting a lot of momentum when there was a lot of interest for our research program but we could never really translate that into the big pot of money that allowed us to to relax and i don't yeah, mean yeah. relax and stop working and just go look at us yeah. go but relaxing that we can just get on and do the research do and the not research. be constantly striving for funding so, so let me let me just stop you there for a second because one of the things that i think um our listeners who are not researchers yeah. would often think when they hear some of this is say well hang on um you know being a being a woman in the workforce in particular, and it's true for men as well, but being a woman in the workforce in any job when you're raising a family and you're working full time is hard. So what's what's specific about research that is knocking people out of the system? Because I'm sure it happens in, you know, if you're a lawyer or you know Absolutely. it happens in other areas as well. But is is are there elements of, you know, being a and you're you were a biomedical researcher that very specifically are challenging in this space? Look, I think it's true that it is difficult for all women in the workplace. Um, you know, once you have a small person, you have this thing that needs you on mm. a level that you've never experienced before, certainly for me. And you want you want that. You yeah. want them to need you and you want to be there for them. So all of a sudden you have this conflict that is stronger than I had certainly experienced ever before in my life. But for research, I think one of the challenges is that we need to be seen 
widely. So we need to travel. You know, we need to mm. be going to conferences. We need to establish those international collaborations, all those sorts of things. And you either travel with your family, which I did with Cody for a long time. Uh, my mum would come along and we would go together. But, you know, so you're there, you're overseas and you're but you've got the family there, so you still have this pull to mm. be back with the family. That pull to be with the family was really great for me. Really challenging, though. You know, obviously incredible, mm. but mm. challenging to deal with. So there's a lot of travel, and I just I think the thing with research is that our job doesn't stop when we walk out of the office, and I right. think we I think we let it become like that. You know, we're passionate about it, we're excited about what we're doing, uh, but so it's there all the time. So even when you sign off for the day, you go home and deal with the family stuff, but it comes back. You know, the emails keep coming in you know i set up mm. slack which is a great communication platform for our lab and it was but it meant that it was non-stop just, it was non-stop yeah. right i wanted to be available i wanted to be at home and with cody as much as i couldn't if she was sick of course i would be there mm. but that would come at the expense of meetings with students other academics you know all those sorts of things i thought right if i put slack in place we can keep talking about this stuff even though i'm not there mm. but it, it, it didn't work yeah, it, it honestly splits, didn't work split your attention it really it, does it's, so i mean there, i mean i think there are some specific things too i mean dr ray and i were talking just before the show about the times that grants are due. So they, <laughs> they, they tend to be due just after the school holidays, which for anyone with a family, whether you're it's male, offensive. female or otherwise, um, that is really tough. Yep. Now, you know, there, there's a whole lot of people in the system who are probably the ones that have grandkids rather than you know, grown kids for whom, yeah, it's great. Non-teaching period, fantastic, nothing better to do. But it's it's certainly challenging for people with young families. It is. Look, I, I think well, I'm just going to interject just to qualify. People often might not realize that that preparing a proper grant is 40 to 80 hours of extra yeah. work on top of your, your regular job. job. Yeah. So finding that when you're supposed to be on holidays is is, is challenging. Mm. Sorry. It's no. Yeah. yeah, I agree entirely. Right. You know, my partner Tim is a scientist as well, and so you know, if we, for some, for all of our summers ever we've yeah. both been writing a grant and so it's even if you do take time off and you spend family time there's this elephant on your back that yeah, you, you still it. have this grant to write and often you'll have a project grant and a fellowship to write both over that same period but this summer right this was my first summer where i've not had to write a grant and it took me a while i was like what's going on with the kids <laughs> this year right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what's going on with the kids like this is awesome right yeah, yeah. everyone's great you know we're having a lot of fun it seems really relaxed and it dawned on me took me a while embarrassingly it took me a while that it was me right i didn't have that elephant mm. on my back i didn't have this grant that i needed to be writing when i was supposed to be spending time with my family yeah it was liberating it was fab- of course tim still wrote one but you know just one i think it was easier for the family to handle than yeah. two i, I, I I suppose some people wouldn't have the the right view of what this is either because these grants are often between 80 and 100 pages they're yes, extraordinary yes. i mean they are in my view one of the most appalling examples of how how to communicate um, an idea for money that there ever is i mean i've seen people get 20 million dollars with a five-page powerpoint um compared to these you know 100 100 page documents for a couple hundred thousand dollars i mean it's just just ludicrous system of um of of submission but it's still there, um, still problematic. So, so you've left. So, so what? What now? I, I mean, have you just embraced the 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 awesomeness of of being home with your daughter, or is have you taken you know your vast knowledge of of laboratory, um, all things in the lab and and yeah. biomedical science, and, and turning into something else? Yeah. Well, I've had to 
correct my health for a while. So, mm, you know, the yep. stress of that took its toll on my yeah, body. So, you know, yeah. I'm obviously still seeing the psychologist, but you know, it, it threw out my menstrual cycle, it threw out my skin, it threw out everything. So I was unwell because of the consequences of trying to manage these stresses for a really long time. It took me a long time to accept that this is the decision you've made. Now you need to process that. So mm. I'm still getting better. You know, I have yep. irregular acupuncture, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the cool thing is I have time, right? Yeah. I, I have time to focus on me. I have time to get well. And the upshot of that for everybody around me is that I've got a lot more time for everybody else around me. But I am doing other things. You mm. know, I'm, for the first time, really, I could just sit back and do nothing. Right. Turns out that's not who I am. Turns <laughs> out that's yeah. not a part of my makeup. So, you know, I've been communicating with some of really Australia's leading uh, business business women who are kind of really want the same things that I want, which is to help women and their children be well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was leading a research program to try and do that, and I was I felt slowed. I felt that the burden of other responsibilities that I had to be an academic, to build my CV, was diluting my ability to actually help women, and that's mm-hmm. really what I wanted to be doing. So I've taken that plunge to enter into the, the business realm, and these people are movers. You know, these women... They're not happy just sitting around in a meeting having a conversation for several hours and they're not really getting anywhere. There are things to do. There are, yeah, there are products to develop and there are women to help. So I'm, I've kind of started, I suppose. I've started Mm. a business of my own to, I guess one of the elephants in the room for me was that we understand that nutrition is critical for a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. Uh, Did you know that only 4% of Australians eat the recommended amount of vegetables and legumes? I, I figured it was low. I didn't know it was 4%. Yeah, I didn't know that yeah. it was that low either. It, was, it yeah. floored me. Extraordinary. Yeah. I'm sure I'm in the 96. I'm, <laughs> I assume well, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> most people are, <laughs> <Sorry>. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, most people are, yeah. I'm yeah. in the majority. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, when you're growing a baby, it's important. Yeah. It's incredibly important that you've got the right nutritional load on board. And so there is no prepared, planned pregnancy meal system for women. It's just not there. And, mm. you know, our messages around what to eat during pregnancy get more and more complicated. Uh, so women just feel this burden of, I need to do the right thing, but it's not easy for them to do it. So I'm going to try and make it easier for them. Mm. I know they've started a company called Eat for Baby. It's all on paper still. It's all still yep. very much yep. uh, in the development phase, but I want to make it easier for women. And I think that that will have a huge impact. Look, I, I mean, that sounds great because the last thing you'd ever want to do if you are about to become pregnant or pregnant is Google, what should they eat when I'm pregnant? Because oh, you will get you know, half of it will be absolute nonsense and, you know, with no evidence base. Yep. Um, the other half of it will probably be pharma companies trying to sell you supplements and then there's a small slither of 1% that's probably useful information yeah. that the Mayo Clinic or something's put out. It's it very hard for, you know, a, a non-scientifically trained person to actually, you know, sort through that mess yeah. and you end up, you know, if you Google, is coffee good for me during pregnant, you will, pregnancy, you will find every answer you could possibly want. Um, and yeah. that, and that's that's problematic. I mean, we do need a more reputable one-stop sort of shop source. So. Yeah, yeah. I think we can do a lot of good in that space. You know, I'm behaving like a scientist. I'm building a scientific advisory board to kind of guide mm. me in some of the areas that are important that aren't my bread and butter. Uh, and, you know, I'll see how I go. Really. Yeah, Pretty really excited. Um, so... Yes, you, I saw, I looked up your track record when you were coming out. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty impressive on paper. So, it's, and you already said areas you're going to go at that aren't your expertise, you'll, you'll talk to people, but is the research there for nutrition for pregnant women? I mean, Syro can release books on great diets for people in general, but is, is, do, do we know what the, the right answer is from an evidence-based standpoint? That's a great question. Um, 
in general, the answer is no. The evidence isn't there. There's not been a randomised controlled trial, for example, in pregnancy of women who eat this particular diet versus women who eat this particular diet. Uh, there is evidence of uh, the preconception diet, so what women will eat over their, the 12 months before they get pregnant, uh, women who eat a diet high in, you know, the, the obvious choices, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables that's low in processed foods. They have much better pregnancy outcomes than mm. women who have a diet high in processed foods and low in fruits and vegetables. So we know those general patterns have a positive benefit, but in terms of a specific for a pregnant woman, this is what you should eat. I don't think that that exists. I don't think we need it to. I think the fundamentals of good nutrition are true for for you and I as they are for pregnant women. Uh, it's just about getting that to them in a way that's convenient for them because, of course, mm. pregnant women aren't just... They're not just a pregnant woman. They're a working yeah. woman. They're an, a mother of other children. They are a whole heap of other things. And it's when it's when you don't not really confident in what to do, it just makes it even more difficult. Yeah. So we'll just make it easy for them to eat the foods that we all, you know, deep down really know that we yeah. should be eating. Anyway. And you got to you got to whack off all those people as soon as they realise you're pregnant. They give you advice walking down the street. You know, they want to touch your belly, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm glad I'm a male because I'd be punching people <laughs> if that happened to me. Now, Haley, just before we let you go, um, I, I don't want to end this on a somber note, but I wanted to ask you. I mean, what do you miss from being a, a researcher? I mean, sounds like all the you know, the evidence-based exploration of, of great impact to people you are doing. Yep. And that was the part you went into science for that, to be frank, it sounds like wasn't really there when you were actively as a scientist. So, I mean, what, what things do you, do you miss from, <laughs> from that field? Uh, right now, not very much. Um, I miss my crew. I miss yep. the team. Uh, and, you know, I feel bad still about what my decision did for the crew. You know, it meant that they all then had to make really big decisions. You know, it meant changes in supervisors. It meant, you know, responsibility for my postdoc that mm-hmm. ideally for her, she shouldn't have had to have yet. But if, you know, when the lab head walks away, there are projects that are still running and all those kind of things. So I miss the crew. I miss that camaraderie that we had. Uh, you know, I haven't seen my collaborators for ages. Yep. And you know, yep. I think, you know, I'm not making contact, but you know, either are they. And I'm wondering if they're like, there's this bit of, I wonder whether Probably we should not sure. talk to her. Yeah, you know, you know yeah, that's yeah. still me, right? I'm still the yeah, same age. Yeah. It's just, you know, I'm going to do it slightly differently now. Yeah. Um, I don't miss a lot yet. Yeah. And like um, you said, you know, being able yeah. to get it, I can kind of get the, the buzz yeah. from, you know, doing these other, having these other engagements. Yeah. Now look, that, that sounds great. And I, I suspect you probably helped a few of them just grow up a bit faster and they'll probably thank you for it one day. So <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't be too day. concerned about that. Haley, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio because this is, this is something we haven't really done before. We haven't talked to someone who's, you know, gone through the singularity and, and come out the other side and, and just hearing that, um, that transition story because I think there's probably more people out there than most people recognize that are either struggling as as you did or have struggled through it and now feel you know dreadful or whatever I remember when I left uh, my research career I was depressed for about four months and the job I went into was fantastic but for some reason it just it what you know shit i spent my whole life training for this and i gave it you know, it's a very unusual process but you do learn that you are more than the degree the university gave you so that's that's a great outcome so thanks so much for chatting to us um good luck with this new business hopefully it will go well and hopefully you'll have a huge impact on the health of um young mums and so forth that awesome. are in the system thanks a lot shane nice to talk to you we're going to take a break folks for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with another guest from the royal melbourne institute of technology RMIT University. Three. Triple. Ah. 
Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. It's a science show. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Kate Fox. She's a senior lecturer in biomedical engineering in the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Kate, thanks so much for coming into RRR. No worries. It's going to be fun. Now, um, you're not so sure. You never know. Could oh, go, could go bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Uh, now you, you're working in this cool area of 3D printing and, um, in particular bringing that to bear on medical implants and so forth, which is something that I think, you know, is the great, you know, people are printing houses. That's cool. But 3D printing in medicine is like wild stuff because it, it opens up so many avenues. So, just give us a little bit of a where we're up to in terms of that space because we people probably see stuff on TV shows, Grey's Anatomy, whatever else, um, about 3D printing. But, you know, where would you find something 3D printable at the moment in the medical, in the healthcare system? Like if I, if I went into a hospital, would there be the possibility of me encountering that technology? Sure. Well, I mean, 3D printing has always been this science fiction-like thing. Hmm. Um, in particular... I guess there's two sort of phases of it. We've got metallic printing, so that's more about personalised devices. So if you imagine you need a hip implant or your nana needs a hip implant, at the moment it's all done subtractively. Right. So Striker or the big manufacturers, they've got sort of this one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Problem being is that human beings, human bodies are all very different. So there's a real push now for personalised, individually designed implants. Mm. And that's mm. where 3D printing is really cool. Because presumably there, I mean, it's, it's got to be possible to do a quick MRI scan, size the thing so that instead of saying, oh, you know, she looks like about number four, um, you know, you can actually 3D print the precise hip that was in there before. Yep, precisely. So there's a real push now for these just-in-time implants. Mm. So theoretically, you have your CT scan for usually for a, a bone tumour or a cancer um, yep. inside the body where you know you're going to lose some bone. So they'll, they'll scan that, they'll work out the exact size of the tumour, but then often when you then open up the patient, the tumour's not what you may have thought it was from the CT. Right. So now we can take the tumour out, reverse engineer the size of it, and print implants just to fit that, theoretically, while the patient's still under. Mm, wow. Yeah, that, so it's under anaesthetic. anaesthetic. So, so that's, that's fast. The aim. Yeah. So theoretically, during surgery, you could print it and put it back in all in about a four-hour period. Wow. So... I, I guess the the thing that that was running through my mind is the Australian company Anatomics, hmm. which on a a case by case, and yep, I've only heard of yep. two that they're up to from the three D printing side, but those are the two that got pressed. The one where they replaced somebody's heel and yep. they printed it in Victoria, and then the rib cage they printed yep, in Europe, but sternum, but they designed here, but. That doesn't seem like it's at scale of mass manufacturer of hips. Sure. So, so where, where, where's, where's Anatomics sit in this theoretical pipeline? Yep, so Anatomics is doing a lot of work also with 3D printed polymer implants for craniofacial implants. So taking the same premise, they could make one size fit some. Mm, All right, okay. so it's, it's moving into that commercial side of instead of one size fit all, you have three or four or five different sizes for different head um, injuries, and you can print the polymer implants for that. So mm. that's what anatomics is at. Now, one so, of the, so that's not metal? That's metal, that's okay, polymer. No, that's polymer. So, I mean, back to the metal for a moment. I mean, one of the things that I, I'm very aware of, we had uh, Peter Chong from St. Vincent's um, 
in recently and you know uh as peter said you know these things don't last beyond you know you put a new hip in it's like 15 years and then you know the body being such a toxic environment to to metals uh over time just these things break down so is that i mean the work you're doing there at rmit i mean you're going that next step beyond the sort of titanium stuff so tell us tell us about that i mean what what do you do to deal with that all right, RMIT has, for the last five or six years, really been at the forefront of optimising this metallic printing. Mm-hmm. But I've come from a bit more of a different perspective. These guys work a lot with you know, uh, manufacturing, engineering and optimised design. I was lucky enough to come out of the Bionicai project where we were using diamond as our electrode to stimulate um, the nerves inside the eye. And we found that diamond was a really great biocompatible material with really interesting medical properties. Okay. So knowing titanium and knowing that titanium has a surface oxide on the top, that makes the titanium great. It's a great material to implant, but it also means that all the cells can't actually interact and bone yeah. can't grow onto or into the implant. So we do lots of tricks like surface roughening, um, pores, um, chemical treatments to try and initiate that interaction. But then I thought, why don't I combine my knowledge of diamond, um, knowing it's a great biomaterial, and use it as a coating technique. All right, so we're trying to make these personalised 3D titanium implants but coated with diamond. Right. And, and what's special about diamond in terms of the human body? I mean, how, how does it differ from titanium in the way our body will react to it? All right. So, the, the, as I said, the surface oxide on the titanium means that you'll get a fibrous capsule forming around it, which is fine. But the beauty is, you know, the human body has a very large percentage of carbon, 20 to 30%. Mm. So, theoretically, if the cells see another carbon allotrope or another carbon material, the interaction is going to be similar to the carbon they will see inside the body. Hmm. Now, people, when they hear diamond, they think cha-ching, you know, but we're not talking about lots of diamond here, are yep. we? I mean, these are, I assume, very, very thin layers? Yeah, so it's, it's a nano-diamond coating that we can then um, grow a thinner film using um, basically a giant microwave down mm. at the Melbourne Centre for nanofabrication. So you make the, the make, you make the titanium implant yep. and then you just coat it, basically. That's, Precisely. And and where are we at in terms of testing these in, in vitro? Like, actually, you know, we is it bunnies and, 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 and mice or, you know, if we actually use these in people, what are we up to? So the diamond-coated um, titaniums, they're up in uh, QUT at the moment having a bit of an investigation with some uh, uh, rats at the yeah. moment. So we should know in the next three months. I'll come back in in a year and I'll tell you. Mm. Presumably, though, you've um, you've run through some of this with the Bionic Ear Project, though. I mean, you said you use yep. those for the electrodes, so we yep. know we know how the body reacts yep, to this Yeah, we already. know that we can implant them um, either subdermally or um, inside the eye of animal models, and we know that there's going to be no, I guess, negative reactions. Yeah, yeah. I think not be, too many humans have uh, had diamond inside them, though. So it'd be great, though. You know, you go, you go back, you know, go back to playing golf with my old buddies, and they say, "Gee, you're looking good." I said, "Well, it's because I've got a diamond hip." Well, when I, I had a neck implant done recently due to sort of some spinal problems. Yeah. And I was saying to the surgeon on the way in, "Can we just coat this in diamond just to see what happens?" Because I don't know. I said, I'm happy to sign any way that you like. You know, whatever. I'll take the risk. Yeah, they won't. He let didn't you go do for it. No, it was strange. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, that's that's funny. Kate, look, it's really fascinating work. It's great to um. 
it's great to hear the, the use of diamond in such an unusual way because um, I know it's been a big part of the Biomag project here. Um, you know, Lauren Ayton, who's, uh, you know, she's at bloody Harvard or something now. And, and I ran run off, off uh, But, but uh, actually, we'll be, we'll be talking to her in just a couple of weeks, so um, we'll, we'll get an update from her. But this is, this is fascinating. I think anything that would make these things last longer because the last thing you want is to be told when you're getting an implant that you're going to have to get it removed and replaced inside the 10, 15 years. That is not a long time in the person's life. Lifespan, so no, especially because by the time you get it replaced, you're generally 15 years older. Yeah, and you don't yeah. want to be having the surgery. You know, the older and older you get, you don't want to be having those surgeries as you're getting older unnecessarily. Precisely. So if we can get around that, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R, and good luck. No worries, thank you. Dr. Kate Fox is a senior lecturer in biomedical engineering in the School of Engineering at RMIT University. We'll be back in just a few minutes, folks. We have uh, one more guest. We're going to be talking about dementia. Three, triple. In the studio with us now is Dr. Anita Go. She is from the Academic Unit for Psychiatry of Old Age in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. She's a research fellow there. Anita, thanks so much for coming to the Triple R Studios. Extremely happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to um, get you in here. I mean, you have so many projects on the go. I'm not even sure re- really where to start. Um, so why don't, why don't we just run through them? Um, one of the ones you're working on is called Pitch, which is Promoting Independence Through Quality Dementia Care at Home. Give us a bit of an outline of what that is. I mean, that sounds fantastic because yes. this is, I mean, dementia is something that we, I think, is underfunded, it's yes. under-understood and is a massive burden on people and carers and the community in general. Exactly so right. So talk, talk us through that. So generally um, my work is in ageing and dementia in general and I actually have three jobs um, which range from a clinical position working with people with dementia mm-hmm. through to the academic unit where I do the science of discovery science and proof of concept and you know very academic scientific projects and then also through to the National Ageing Research Institute which is about translational research and bringing that research to life and making that useful to people Mm, on the ground level um so it's really good range of positions that i have so it's not just you know academia it's not just hospital clinical work but it's also um work that translates things which Mm. is what the pitch project is about so basically the government has you know has this big push to consumer driven care where the person living with dementia and their family gets funding to in, in order to enable them to live at home for longer. We okay. know that people want to live at home for longer. Um, they're more comfortable there. They want to die at home as well if they're able to. And what the government has instituted is what's called the home care package. And mm. that can range from level one to level four with increasing levels of subsidies. Okay. These home care workers they have to respond to everything. So these are people that go into the community. They have to kind of look after people on the autistic spectrum or people with physical um, disabilities that require some help through to dementia care. So what we want to do with the PITCH program is to create a training and education program to improve their knowledge, so their dementia Mm. literacy, Mm. and also their kind of empathy skills for the people living with dementia and their carers as well. Um, so that kind of improves outcomes for all those people involved. Mm. Yeah, it sounds fabulous. Um, 
Moving on to one of your other projects, yes. um, you're using the seven Tesla magnetic resonance in the yeah. MRI system. Yeah. Um, now, I, just to put in perspective, people, you know, when the number's bigger, the magnetic field strength is stronger and the re- resolution is higher. So there's only, is there one or two of these two. in Australia? There's two, okay. one up in Queensland? Or? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in Melbourne, so. but yeah, in, um, in Victoria, there's only one of these seven Tesla machines. And uh, I suppose what, people would normally stick their head or foot or arm into at, at normal clinics would be a three or four, yeah, three, Usually three Tesla, three Tesla systems. So, so this is substantially yes. um, beyond that. And you're using this to look at sort of early changes in the brain. So yes. tell, us, tell us about that because that's fascinating. I mean, some of these dementias are so long range in terms of their onset. Yes, exactly right. So, you know, we know dementia is increasing and our population is ageing. So the numbers of people with dementia are just going to increase exponentially to mm. about a million people by 2056. And wow. it's at the moment the second leading cause of death in okay. Australia. Yep. So what we want to do is look at dementia prevention. Um, again, like decades before the symptoms actually start. And we also want to look at um, really specific and sensitive biomarkers. So how can we tell someone is going to eventually get um, a dementia of some description? And, you know, when do we put in interventions if we have them? And when's the best time to put in interventions? Mm. So this person, you know, either delays the onset of dementia or it makes it less severe um, and just supports that kind of progress through that. Pro, pro, um, dementia staging. So this specific project is called the micro study. Yep. And we are putting people through um, that are the high risk for dementia based on their scores on a questionnaire or low risk for dementia. And we want to compare what their brains look like basically um, in a really sensitive machine. Hmm. So we're putting them in a three Tesla machine and yep. also in a seven Tesla machine. And hopefully because the seven Tesla machine is much more sensitive, we'll be able to see um, parts of the brain that maybe would be a good biomarker for dementia progression. And we're talking about a biomarker here that you would see well beyond the onset yes. of any sort of symptom. Even the, you know, I'm not sure where my car keys are kind of stuff that yes. people often get worried about, yes. which is not necessarily a, a predictor of, of um, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia at all. So how far out do you think, you know, how far out are you hoping um, you'll be able to go? Is it sort of decades or...? So at the moment with this specific project, we're looking at healthy middle-aged adults, yep. so um, in their 40s and 50s, because what we want to do is find a biomarker before the brain is compromised, mm-hmm. before the plaques and the tangles... Um, have affecting the brain pathology. So basically to introduce things before something's gone wrong. Basically prevention is better than cure. Um, And we know from the research out there that it is decades and decades before that the brain will start to accumulate the proteins that you don't want the brain to have Mm, mm. before you even see any symptoms. How many people are are involved in this study and and how many do you need for this to be sort of a a viable test of whether or not you can do this? Yes, so this is a very much a pilot study. Um, We're still you know, working out how to use the 7 Tesla machine and how to validate it and all the protocols that need to be in place. Uh, so at the moment we're doing 20 people with low risk for dementia yep. and 20 people with high risk of dementia. And specifically we're still recruiting for the high risk Right, cohort. right, yeah. And how long, uh, you know, I have this image that, you know, you have to do this over a period of decades to get the information in. Is that right or can it be done quicker? 
Oh, everything takes a long time in yeah. science in terms of getting the, the evidence out there. But hopefully this will be very proof of concept mm. and it will lead off to longer term, more intensive research that mm. we can look into these things. Now, you're also working on Huntington's disease, which is not related yes, to Huntington. in any way, shape or form. Um, always disturbed when I hear about it. This is, this is a very rare but extremely, you know, awful yes. um, condition for people to have. Just... Quickly, what, what are the symptoms of Huntington's disease? What does it do to the so body? Huntington's disease, yes, it's very rare. So it's about seven per 100,000 in kind mm-hmm. of Western populations. And you kind of get all the bad things that you don't want when, you know, you have a neurodegenerative disorder. You have cognitive symptoms, so it eventually leads to a dementia, so thinking problems. You also have a significant movement disorder. So it actually used to be called Huntington's chorea, which is right. a Greek word for dance. So they have this uncontrolled involuntary movements and they also have the psychiatric and behavioral problems as well so it's completely across the board and also it's a genetic disorder and it's Mm. kind of autosomally dominantly inherited which means you get a 50 percent chance of getting the gene from one of your parents if you if you have the gene i know because people can be tested for for this and does that mean you definitely get it at some stage is it that Yes, yes. So it's one of the only dementias where you have predictive testing and it's just a simple blood test and it kind of measures the genetic stutter in in that particular gene. Um, And if you have generally 40 or more of this genetic stutter, which is called Mm. the CAG repeat, then you're pretty much 100% likely going to get the symptoms of Huntington's if you live long enough. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the areas where when we hear about CRISPR and gene editing, to me, you would go after first because if you you know for sure this is coming up, you'd be willing to say, look, yeah, Edit my genes. Do whatever you got to yes. do because there's no there's no cure um, there's no or cure. treatment. There's no treatment, um, and it's amazing because it's been 20 years since the gene was found, but still yeah. no actually disease modifying treatment at all. Wow! Yeah, so there's some stuff. things coming through the pipeline. They're a little bit more promising, especially um, very recently. There's been a promising trial. Um, but at the moment, nothing disease modifying. Mm. And you're doing some longitudinal studies in that area to yes. watch the progression. That's right. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, I just want to quickly talk about the Homeward Bound project yes. because you, you're heading off to Antarctica. I am. January. I'm very excited about going what to Antarctica. What is that about? This sounds like the biggest junket of all time. Antarctica. <laughs> I've seen people go to Spain, but yes. Antarctica... You know, are there conference venues? Tell us. What, no, what there is no conference venues. On? And I'm not sure whether you'd call the most remote part of the world um, a junket. Only for us science but adventure seekers. Yes, yeah. yes. Science seekers cool. find it very they exciting. They have penguins. Lots of them. They have lots of penguins. Yeah, yeah. They just found, found another lot. Yeah, yes. yeah, a whole lot, yeah. So what Homeward Band is about is basically joining together a network of a 1,000 women scientists, of 1,000 women in STEM, in order to increase leadership, um, strategic thinking and a science initiative to heighten influence of women. A thousand? A thousand. They're not all going on the one vote? No, it's over 10 years. Okay. So it's about 80 oh, people okay. per year, and yep. I'm the third cohort. Wow. Uh, so the 2016 Homeward Bounders have gone and come back, and the 2018 people are actually on the ship at the moment in Antarctica. And basically what we want to do is influence policy and decision-making and kind of heighten the visibility of women in STEM. And why Antarctica? Why Antarctica? Because... It's remote, and a lot of the scientists, it's about the good of the planet um, and a lot of sustainability and environmental science as well. And for people like me who is into ageing policy, it's more about having that time, a way to reflect 
on strategic yeah, and yeah. leadership capabilities. Because a lot of academia is about the science and not yeah. so much about the leadership and how to lead a good team and how to keep people in the field and how mm. to just be a good role model. Um, oh, look, it's, it, sound, it sounds fantastic. I, and you're on a boat, so there's going to yes. be a lot of you on the small, relatively small, but yes. I'd be handing out copies of Lord of the Flies if it was me, <laughs> um, just as a fun thing. And then when you get there, everyone has to watch The Thing, John Carpenter version, not the oh, remake, yes. the crappy, but everyone should watch The Thing as soon as yes. they arrive in Antarctica and then just see what happens because that's when the fun Chaos. starts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Just, I, you know, I mean, I know Lord of the Flies was all young guys, but I think it can be translated. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, there's been two cohorts and they, were, they all went very well. Back? Yes. Oh, that's our, good. Our department <laughs> has people that send, go down Antarctica all the time to clean up waste and do portable <laughs> chemical plants. It's not like that. It's not like that. They, yeah. they do have to learn how to camp in an ice fox, in a, in a ice foxhole if they get lost. Oh, when, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Anita Go, thank you so much for thank coming for in and chatting me. to us. It's, it's really interesting to hear about all this work and I know there's a lot going on in this space, um, in a rel, you know, relatively unfunded space. There's some really yes. good work going on. So good luck with that. Keep up these programs. It sounds like you've got your hands in all the different pies of impact, but the blue sky research as yes. well, which is great to hear for a researcher doing that. Um, we will chat to you again at some stage okay. in the future. Thank you for having me. Dr. Anita Go is a research fellow in the academic unit for psychiatry of old age in the Department of Psychiatry at University of Melbourne and also part of NARI. And I've probably missed a whole lot of other things that you're doing as well. <laughs> Neuropsychiatry. Neuropsychiatry. Royal yeah, Melbourne Hospital. Royal Melbourne Hospital. <laughs> um, folks, we're going to have to leave it there. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dr. Ray, good to have you on board yet again. It was fun. It was a fun show. See you in a few weeks. Uh, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter. And if you aren't already linked up, there is a podcast that you can download. Just go onto your podcast app and search for Einstein and Gogo, and you'll find it nice and easily. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to us. And we will chat to you again next week with some awesome science. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.